The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. So how's everybody doing? <laughs> so I wanted to continue talking about these teaching slogans of Atisha that we've been studying all long ago. And many of these, well, quite a number of them, point to what not to do. Don't talk about injured limbs, abandon any hope of fruition, abandon poisoned food, don't be so predictable, and so on. The precepts also point to what not to do, those actions that create the most burdensome karma. The Heart Sutra is filled with negations. And all of this is really meeting our sort of very old and impulsive desire to settle into something, to solidify to separate distance, to identify ourselves as something, and in the same moment to, to disidentify with what we are not. But I think of all of those negations as affirmations, that the whole universe is just here and waiting for us to give us itself to us, but without our false illusions, our attachments, all the things that bind us, bind the world. And so it, particularly in the Heart Sutra, it doesn't replace the negation with an affirmation. It's not this, but it is this, because that's where we get stuck. Letting go of one grasp hold and grasping another. And so really to be <clears throat> work towards a freedom that is not relying on anything <clears throat> in a false way. The Buddha said that <clears throat> all of dukkha in our mind, because that's the only place it exists, <clears throat> is ultimately not just dissatisfying, but exhausting, tiring, like my throat. <laughs> and so Seshin, in Seshin we simplify talking, reading, looking around, phones, news, and bring everything down to just the essential practices. Sitting, walking, eating, bowing, caretaking. Some teachings, but not too much. Not too much. 
so that we can sit on this diamond seat and go to the source. To cut off the doors of our attachments and distractions so that we can encounter what is true. We can genuinely take responsibility. We can more continuously keep the light turned within. We can give up waiting for the person, the place, the time, the circumstances that we have hung all of our hopes and dreams on. So in a way, the austerity of Seshin is just being with ourselves. Don't transfer the ox's load to the cow, Atisha said. I looked at it, you know, we might get a little tangled up in the gender of this. I couldn't really come up with a snappy alternative, but don't transfer a master artisan's load to an apprentice or something like that. Judy Leaf said this slogan is about weaseling out of our own duties and responsibilities, about passing the buck. That when we make a commitment, she says, instead of following through, we try to hand it off to somebody else out of self-concern. So the idea is not to put the heavier load on someone who is not equipped for that or ready for that, but to take that ourselves. She said it's also about learning how to work with others. It's an art to know how much responsibility to take for ourselves and how much to share with others so that everyone can be challenged but not overwhelmed. It's one of the really important aspects of training is to take responsibility and take responsibilities for different things in a way that's alive. And so this slogan is really talking about stepping up, stepping in, into what is ours to hold, to carry, to fulfill. You know, sometimes we make choices that bring responsibilities to us. And sometimes there are aspects of those responsibilities that we may feel we're not prepared for, that we're not ready for, we feel insecure or doubt our ability. And sometimes just things just come to us. We're just asked. Or we need to do something because we're the one who's there. And so the Bodhisattva is Trumpa once said, Bodhisattva is willing to make the first move, to step forward, not in a reckless way, not in a foolhardy way or a you know, contrived, heroic way, but to take up those things that are rightfully ours or that just need to be held by somebody and we're the one who happens to be there. 
Monastics studied a book a while back on power. Power, and it was mostly looking at it from the point of view of business. But we were looking at it in terms of those dynamics, in terms of our own lives here. And one of the things that the woman who wrote it said that I really stuck with me was she said, you know, when you're put into a new role, you're not ready. And I remember reading that thinking, what? And she said, you're not ready because you've never done it before. But hopefully you are ready to not be ready (laughs) because you're being put into that role. And there was something true about that that struck true to with me about that, and that was kind of comforting because I have felt that so many times. Choosing to do something, being asked to do something, not having done it before. So in having that sense of not being ready, but not thinking that that was sort of allowed, right? If I'm being asked to do it, then I must be ready, but I don't feel ready. But if we haven't done it before, then we don't know yet. Right? We don't have that learned experience that we can draw from or remember and find strength in. But of course, those moments, so much of the time, that's how we grow. That's where we learn. And in this practice of letting go of the self, which, which we can think of as letting go of the, the very constricted and confined way that we and others have defined who we are so that we can experience the vastness, the boundlessness, our true nature. But we can't do that in the abstract, right? We can't just do that as an idea. We have to experience the confinement. The way that we hold ourselves back, we we limit ourselves. And we have to see in a situation that is demanding that we be larger. We extend ourselves into that, through that. And so, and, and so we, that's just another way of talking about serving. To serve. To take on something that has some weight, might be small, might be large. Some significance might be small, might be large. But in service, it means that that thing, whatever it is, has the potential to do some good. And if it's good, that means that it will have value, benefit for others. Which means we're being asked to expend energy time, mental, physical, emotional energy to maybe develop ourselves, develop some skills, learn something. I remember when I, the first year that I was here, well, maybe not that, it wasn't that soon, but it was pretty early. I was asked to be the bookkeeper. I mean, I arrived here in a dodge dart that a, a, my, a good friend who knew more about cars than I did, but not much more, convinced me to buy. I, and I hated that car. Um, <laughs> and I was so poor that when I got here, the brakes were out. But I had to bring it, right? Because it was my car and I had all my stuff in it. But the brakes were out. So I came here. I brought it in the middle of the night. 
and drove for about an hour away, and we had to take a route, so I never had to stop. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so when they asked me to be a bookkeeper, I said, I don't know anything about bookkeeping. I haven't even had any money to bookkeep. And they said, but you studied mathematics. I said, they're not the same at all. <laughs> and they said, well, you're the best we've got. So I didn't know anything. And so I remember somehow I found somebody, a very generous woman who was an accountant in Woodstock. It must have been, you know, through the network. And I remember going and spending afternoons in her kitchen, at her kitchen table, as she tutored me in how to do books. So I had to develop some skills, because I didn't have any, to be able to do this task, this role, to fulfill this role that I had been given. So that's what we take on. And with that, because we're just a person, right, we're going to make mistakes. I remember a board meeting where I had prepared, spent a lot of time preparing a report for the board, a financial report, and they looked over it and spent, I don't know, it seemed like an eternity, the rest of the meeting, it seemed like to me, discussing whether they should get another bookkeeper or pay for another bookkeeper. <laughs> and I felt like they were just stabbing a dagger in my heart. Because <laughs> I thought they were talking about me. They were talking about the financial report, which I had something to do with. But I was hearing it in a very personal way. And so in taking on that load, I was at the bank yesterday talking with uh, the manager who I've known for many years. <clears throat> and he was, we were talking and he was introducing me to assistant manager. And he was kind of building up the monastery. It's a wonderful place, wonderful people. He said, I'm the abbot. I've been promoted, he said. And I said, yeah, we call that the iron yoke. And he said, what? And I said, that's what they call being the abbot, is that you have to wear an iron yoke. And they both just looked at me. <laughs> and I thought, I'm not going to try and explain it. Just let them wonder about that. <laughs> and the Bodhisattva does this without the requisite reward abandon any hope of fruition but just because it can help and people everywhere are doing this parents, school teachers, therapists, construction workers I mean, in almost any role where we come into contact with other people, we're there to do something that somebody else wants or needs. And of course, there are many different ways we can do that. And we can do that simply to convey or exchange or carry forth some transaction, or the Bodhisattva uses that opportunity to make contact, to serve in a sense, uses the, the, the vehicle of that situation to make contact with somebody, to offer something, to try and do something good. And because those responsibilities sometimes carry weight, 
require sacrifice of time or energy or risk because we're taking some chances. We could fail. We could make mistakes. We almost certainly will. And because that whole th setup is not theoretical, those mistakes will have consequences. Right? <clears throat> That's part of the service. That's part of serving, is being willing to do that. Being willing to step in that role and do something which has the potential to help. May have some significance in terms of action and consequence. And if it has significance, that means it has the potential to do good, but also the potential to harm. And so it means we have to be willing to step into that field of risk. And this isn't about wanting to be a leader or a person of power or to achieve any posi position of you know, status. It's just about using our body and our mind, our circumstances, our time, our energy, our vows, to offer something. In the Vimalakirti Sutra, at the very early part of the sutra, the Buddha talks about the Buddha field. And the Buddha field, he says, is the, <clears throat> the, Buddha, field, the Buddha field of a bodhisattva is a field of living beings. It's where living beings live and work and play. And why is this? The Buddha says the bodhisattva embraces that Buddha field to the same extent that they cause the development of living beings. So the degree to which we engage that field and everything that's in it, everyone, all the possibilities, is the extent to which we have the possibility, the potential to actually help others to develop. But what keeps us from being egoistic is that it's not for reward, that it's practiced selflessly. It's not a position of high and low. They embrace the Buddha field to the same extent that living beings become disciplined, that is, in living the precepts, living a moral life. He says the Buddha field of bodhisattva springs from the aims of living beings. That means from bodhicitta. So it's a, it's a, it's a very different way of thinking about and experiencing and bringing ourselves into the place that we are, rather than this just the place where we are or the place where we do business or the place we happen to live or the place where we work or the place where we're hanging out or the place we're just passing through. It's a place in which our bodhicitta, our bodhisattva vow, has the opportunity to be lived. But then he says, less that we make too much a deal of this. He says, it's like if you were to build an empty space, wish to build in empty space, you might go ahead in spite of the fact that it's not possible to build or to adorn anything in empty space, but go ahead anyway. And in the same way, a bodhisattva who knows full well that all things, all beings, are like this empty space, they too wish to build a Buddha field in order to develop themselves and other living beings. So they go ahead, in spite of the fact that it's not really possible to do that, to build something solid or fixed, to ultimately save another sentient being 
because they're already Buddha nature. But because we don't know that, the Bodhisattva knowingly builds this Buddha field in empty space, knowing that there's nothing intrinsic there, but there's a lot of suffering. And there's a lot of possibility. And so we bring, you know, that image of Avalokiteshvara with the thousand hands and arms. And in some of the images are implements. And those are the implements that are used in helping others, right? So you could have your own assortment, depending on where you are, who you're serving. And so we can use our life experiences, the things that we've developed, our particular strengths, whatever those might be, our situations, the whole network, the whole web, And just to have that mindset of wanting to explore and utilize opportunities. Jimon and I were, spent a few days in Montreal last week when I was away. We were away. <clears throat> and um, one night we were in Chinatown in a pastry shop getting some little treats. And uh, it was pretty crowded. And a guy came in, kind of a big guy. And I was at the counter, we were trying to pay out, and the woman behind the counter, owner, manager, saw this guy and goes, oh no. And she runs around and starts, he's, he's, he's asking for money. He's going around to each person asking for money. And he's doing that in a kind of a loud voice, and she's trying to get him out of the shop in a very loud voice. So there's quite a bit of, um, it, was, it was very familiar. It felt like a New York moment, you know, kind of. And meanwhile, everybody else is just trying to get their donuts and get out, right? <laughs> and so he came to me, and he, he said he wanted to buy a dinner at a restaurant down the street. And he came to me, and I said, look, I'll give you the money for the food. He said, you will? And I said, yeah, but I'm going to give it to you outside. So I said, go outside and wait for me. i got to finish up here, and I'll meet you in a minute. He says, you will? And I said, yeah, I will. So he left. We paid out, paid up, and then we went out, and he was standing there. And so I gave him, I said, okay, here's the money for your food. I said, but I want you to, to promise me something, which was probably a mistake. <clears throat> I set him up, possibly, right? But I said, I want you to promise me something. He goes, what? And I said, look, when you go in there like that, it really upsets them. You see how upset they were? It's not good. So why don't you just stand outside and hit on people when they come in or going out? <laughs> He said, okay, I'll do that. (laughs) Of course, I have no idea. And that's not really the point. If it helps. Our training is an ongoing expression of this stepping into responsibility. In the very beginning, it's just arrive on that seat and do your work. Do the practice. Engage the Dharma. Show up where you need to show up. Merge, mingle, unify with the Sangha. Learn how to be inside of yourself and be completely integrated 
without unnecessary conversation, without looking, without just know how to do that, learn how to do that. Did any of you come here onto this mountain so that you could be a meal server or an usher or a jikido or a monitor or a liturgist or a work supervisor or a cook or to do bookkeeping or to run the store <clears throat> or to be on the grounds and buildings or to be an abbot or to be a teacher? Anyone who comes here to gain power to gain status, to gain position, needs to abandon that, needs to work with their greatest defilement first, needs to abandon hope of fruition, needs to not expect applause, needs to regard that very dream of power as a dream. And while we are doing this, while we are stepping forward, Don't try to be the fastest. Another translation is don't aim to win. Pema says it very directly. Just don't compete with others. Don't compete. Which sounds easier than it is, I think. <laughs> to compete is to strive, to gain, to try and win something, gain something from someone else. Right? Otherwise, it's not a competition. Competition to surpass someone. And as I was thinking about this, <clears throat> I was thinking about, you know, different fields in which there is competition. That's part of the, the reason for being there. Can we compete without it being based in self-clinging? Whatever it is, playing a game, competing for a grant, I remember doing auditions for music jobs, for school, being in line, long line of people who were all competing for the same place, same position, and there were only a few. So we're competing about each other. So we can do that because we want to beat everyone else. That's one way, to be the best. Or we can do it just for the love of the thing itself. Can we be the best we can be with that as our motivation, without it being put at the risk or the, the neck of someone else. When we compete, what mouth is that feeding exactly? What desire does that fulfill? And what insecurity does that temporarily calm? Because it has to be temporary. Because any triumph is momentary, right? Nobody wins anything forever. And so that insecurity just comes right back. I remember when I was, you know, living, trying to be a musician, <clears throat> performing and auditioning and doing, you know, what musicians do. And that as soon as I finished one thing, having worked so hard for performance or recital or whatever it was, I had to start the next thing. So I was always living with, you know, trying to be as best as I could, be better than I was last time, always. And it was hard to not do that without self-clinging. And I was practicing, but that was <laughs> tough. Which was really based in fear and anxiety. 
that made it difficult me for really thoroughly enjoy and appreciate what I was doing, which was loving music. I remember sitting here at least once in the Zendo and thinking about all the things that other people were better at than me. Smarter, more compassionate, better looking, more favored by the teacher, further along in training, whatever it might be. Right? And then I remember thinking to myself, is that why you came? Did you come here to beat all these other people at these things that, if you really thought about it, maybe aren't even that important? And that brought me right in that moment. Trelek said, human beings are by nature competitive and constantly want to outperform others. It really doesn't matter what we're doing. But this only engenders pride and arrogance when we do better and resentment, envy, and and jealousy when we do worse. And then he says, that's not to say that we shouldn't try to excel, to do our best, for that would be contrary to the Mahayana vision, right? Like, let's rally around being mediocre bodhisattvas, (laughs) right? I mean, you know, no. So we, because otherwise, because in that we're not trusting the Dharma, we're, we're, we're making mediocre vows, and what's the point of that? We're not applying ourselves. We're not testing those limits. We're not seeing that we are larger. And so I thought about that. Are we by nature competitive? Is that really our nature? Is it intrinsic? And then I was thinking, and so I don't have an answer to that, but I was thinking about all the moments when we can be doing something here, just this week. Very simple, very plain. No bells and whistles, no no stars on a chart, no big rewards, no bells sounding. This dish crew just got finished faster than any other dish crew. But in all of those moments where we're on a dish crew, we're doing caretaking, we're Walking kin hen. Somebody's giving a talk. And thinking, just sort of noting, where's everybody else? Where's everybody else? At? Where, how am I doing in relationship to anybody else? We not even, might not even think about it as competitiveness, but it's just like comparing. And sometimes competing. Whenever practice, or what we call practice, creates a division, builds a wall, creates high and low, sets up the standard for success and failure, becomes about getting something or losing something, that's samsara. We're at it again. We're just doing what we've been trained to do, in a sense. And so to recognize that for what it is, that's some sorrow. That's why we're struggling. That's why that's not ultimately satisfying. That's our fear speaking. Those are our attachments being active. 
In intimate language, Dogen said, you know, in the koan where the Buddha raises the flower and only Mahakashapa smiles, the question, one of the questions of the koan is, why did only Mahakashapa smile? He received the transmission. Nobody else did. Gain and loss. Success and failure. High and low. The chosen one. Dogen says, didn't the innumerable beings in the assembly understand the intimate language of holding up the flower? Understand that they stand, he says, understand that they stand shoulder to shoulder with Mahakashapa. They are born simultaneously with the Buddha. The innumerable beings are no other than the innumerable beings, arousing the thought of aspiration for enlightenment at the very same moment. They take the same path and abide on the same earth. These beings see the Buddha and hear the Dharma with wisdom that knows and with wisdom that goes beyond knowing. Seeing one Buddha, they see as many Buddhas as the sands of the Ganges. At the assembly of each Buddha, there are millions and billions of these beings. Understand that each Buddha demonstrates the moment when holding up the flower emerges. What is seen is not obscure. What is heard is clear. This is mind eye, body eye, mind ear, body ear. Dogen is saying that these innumerable beings are fully endowed Buddhas having but a nature that no one is lacking. No one is not here and no one is not seen. So within our developing understanding, not yet fully clear, is there an ancient wisdom within us, we call it Buddha nature, that encounters intimate language, the reality of all things, and knows, but without yet fully understanding that sees and hears without fully understanding, but sees and hears. There is delusion and enlightenment. There is holding on and letting go. We can't deny that. There is a cloudy mind and a clear mind. There is self-clinging and self-realization. But perhaps Dogen is saying, true, but just never establish one mind, one self, one person, one view, one action against another. Another apart from you or another that is you. Don't aim to win, just practice to live to be a benefit, to do something with this life. And now I know you, the film that uh, Dadaroshi helped create after Maizuma Roshi's death, there's a scene where he's interviewing, they're interviewing Echo, uh, Maizuma Roshi's wife, and she's recounting where, <clears throat> she said they were having some argument, you know, a married couple's argument. And she came up into the bedroom to say something, and he turned around, and I could imagine that it had something to do with his role as a teacher and his involvement with the Sangha and how involved he was and how much he was giving of his life to the Sangha, which meant taking some time away from the family that he had created. I don't know, but I was imagining. And that she came up to say something, and he turned around and said, I'm just trying to do something fine with my life. 
And then finally, don't act with a twist. <clears throat> Trelik said, this is about the need for sincerity and honesty. We should never use spiritual practices to further our own dubious or self-centered motivations and, go- and goals. We may be doing the right thing, but have a hidden agenda that is self-serving. Trying to use spiritual practice and its results from a half-hearted place is like adopting a traitor's mentality to the path. When I reflect on this, I think just to be simple, to be humble, to be honest, to be straightforward, to be sincere. In a way, doesn't it all come down to this? In the Dhammapada, the Buddha said something, I'm not quoting exactly, something like, just cease from doing harm. And in every way, do something that is wholesome. This is the essence of my teaching. And so then, to take responsibility, to not be the fastest, just to steadily practice is true and straightforward. We don't need all of that other stuff. The projections, the intrigue, the pretense, the competition, the winning and losing. But there is striving. There is suffering that is painful and real. There is a world a Buddha field in which we have the capacity to offer something. So it's never about being passive or complacent, ever. So how do we strive? How do we have faith in the Dharma? How do we have faith in ourselves and our bodhisattva vows, this bodhisattva path, and the real, not just possibility, but ability that we have to transform our lives without getting all tangled up. Well, that's... You kind of have to get tangled up (laughs) now and then, or a lot. You choose. (laughs) Because that's how we learn. That's That's how this becomes real. And so those tangles those obstacles, those things we're trying to avoid are the very things by which we put this dharma to work in ourselves and verify it. And so just do the practice you're doing. Enter this day. Take up the responsibility, whatever it might be. As you are, that's the thing. That's being simple and humble as yourself. not as a demon, not as a hero. Your mistakes are not going to end the world. Your successes are not going to save the world. Okay, so let's relieve ourselves of that, those burdens, and practice being on this enlightening path. We reflect on how it is to be with someone in whom we trust. Right? That's just straight ahead, straightforward. Then we don't have to doubt that they're working behind the scenes, that they're being dishonest, being insincere, they're saying one thing but meaning another. We don't, we don't have to put all our energy into any of that. Right? 
Well, what if we are that person? Then that's what we're giving to others. To give fearlessness, to give trust. Plain, simple. Maybe that's why we love the animals in our world that we love. Right? Because they're not duplicitous. I did have a cat, <clears throat> an amazing, <laughs> amazing cat, who, if we didn't get out of bed in time for her, she would get on the dresser and look at us, and then she would knock something off. <laughs> Honest to God. And just look us right in the eye and just say, I'm doing this. <laughs> but she wasn't dishonest. She wasn't hiding anything. <laughs> So that means, can we do this in our zazen? Can we sit simple, plain, effortful, with confidence? Not trying to win, not trying to be the fastest, but trying to go deep. How deep can you go? What does that even mean? Find out. How thoroughly. Can you, you, your person, the person that is you, sitting on your cushion, not some abstract you, but you, how thoroughly can you trust this Dharma and practice it and see how far you can go, it can go in you? We can do that. And when we realize we can do that, when we give up trying to manage and control the outcome, then the outcome that is naturally available to us will appear. What is seen is not obscure, Dogen said. What is heard is clear. The mind eye, the body eye, the mind ear, the body ear. In a way, while there are some very challenging teachings, the essence of it is not complicated. Trusting it, and then embodying that trust, practicing in accord with that trust, that's more difficult, right? Because for a long, long time, we've been trusting a lot of deeply set, deeply ingrained patterns. But that's just the way it is for now, because nothing is fixed. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, Dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.